Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. This is a two-parter. This is the second part. If you haven't seen or heard the first part of this episode, I would highly recommend doing that, or you are not going to have any clue what's going on. However, I am aware that a few days have passed since the first episode, so let us just recap what this is all about. This is a script about Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Um, he is a guy who was sending bombs all around the show to academics and people in technology with the idea of basically he was a bit of a Luddite. He didn't really like technology. He saw people on computers and was like, that's not for me. I'm not into that. And I don't want other people to be into that either. So I'm going to bomb them. It's kind of insane. And then he got to this stage. This went on for years, by the way. And there were just lulls where he didn't bomb anyone for a long time. And uh, eventually, he said, what I'm going to do is that I want people to read my 35,000-word treatise on, it was called, like, Industrial Society and Its Future or something, which is him basically bagging on technology for 35,000 words. As we discussed in in the last episode, um, it kind of makes sense. Like, a lot of his arguments are pretty salient. Angus, who wrote the scripts and wrote the second part as well, he was saying, he's an engineer. And he was like, yeah, I kind of get it. You can't really argue with these points. You might not agree with them entirely, but it's like, they're they're well-made points. Because, as we will probably find out in this episode, in this part today, uh, the Unabomber, highly educated. In fact, their their profile of him said he was highly educated, so they got that right, as we will find out. Anyway, I'm not going to spoil any more. Let's just get into today's episode. Thank you. As I said, Angus wrote it and uh, I read it. I'm Simon. Did I say that? Hello. And then Jen edited it. So with that recap out of the way, let us jump in. A prodigy is made. Theodore John Kaczynski was born into the world on May 22, 1942, in Chicago, Illinois. He was the first child of working-class Polish-American parents and was named after his father, Theodore, though he wasn't given the name of Junior. Often, serial killers are at least a partial product of their environment. They see violence early on or a subject violence from their parents, but this was simply not the case for young Ted. His mother wanted to stay at home to raise him and his brother, and his father was a sausage maker. Both parents had been born Catholic but became atheists and were cautious to allow their boys to choose their own beliefs. At the time, this kind of freedom of voice was a rare one for the vast majority of children. Yeah, I realized like I grew up and my parents were like you can believe whatever you want. <laughs> like just just go for it. We don't uh, I mean, I guess it's because they also are not religious. Even even my grandparents like you go back that far it's like you well I, I mean my uh, step grandparents are like they were really religious. But like not in a bad way. It's fine. People can be religious. But they were a bit evangelical. They were like you should be getting into that religion. Hmm, everyone loves religion. I'm like, I just don't. And uh, but on my on my uh, my mum's side, my my nan was like, she's like, no, of course I don't believe in any of that stuff. Which is it was. I feel like that's a bit unusual for like super old people. But anyway, let's carry on. <laughs> Thanks for that tangent, Simon. Brilliant information. They were good parents in every regard, and they did all they could to care and provide a stable household for both Ted and his brother David. As his mother recalls, Ted was a happy baby, although an incident stuck out in her mind that might suggest a partial reason 
for the person he would become. When Ted was still an infant, he contracted severe hives and was sent to hospital. It was common in those days for children to be kept in isolation, even from their parents. Today, psychologists call this maternal deprivation, and it's advised that during the first few years of a child's life, it's avoided as much as possible. When this occurred to baby Ted, it's said that he displayed textbook symptoms of a child suffering from maternal deprivation. He was highly distressed for several days, eventually becoming quiet and apathetic. Wanda recalls that he showed nothing of the happy baby that went into the hospital when she returned to get him. Oh, that's so sad. Like, as someone with young kids, it's like, yeah. I mean, they love me. My kids, I feel like they're always super happy to see me, which is super nice. Even the baby, he's like six months old. He always smiles, like a huge smile. It's so sweet. But they definitely love their mum more at this age. <laughs> like, no question. Like, if she goes away, they're like, Mum? 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 <laughs> It'd be so sad for them to be taken away from her for like some time like that. Ted attended Sherman Elementary School in Chicago and was described as a healthy and well-adjusted child. After his brother David was born, the family moved to a suburb of Chicago called Evergreen Park. A friend of the family, who was a psychologist, tested Ted and found that he had an IQ of 167, which is massive. <laughs> it's very high. Later in life, this would be tested as high as 187, which would put him firmly in the category of genius. It puts him well, well into the category of genius. The category of genius is well below 187. At this time, Ted showed a lot of promise as a student and was recommended that he skip two years, moving him from a class of his peers to a class of much older children. He did not fit well with them and was persistently bullied from then until the time he would graduate high school. It was around this time that he began to remove himself from society. His father, Theodore, apparently adored the outdoors and would regularly take his sons on camping trips, teaching them how to hunt fish and survive in the wilderness. Both Ted and David, who were very close, enjoyed these excursions. David recalls that his brother would be the happiest when he was out of the house and exploring the wilderness, a stark contrast to how he behaved in social situations. As he continued to be bullied and excluded by the kids in his classes, he would isolate himself more and more. It's This is a thing, like, if you're super smart, getting moved ahead a couple of years has this massive disadvantage of everyone being like, well, you're a massive nerd because you're so smart, and you're also a lot smaller and less mature than us. Which seems like a terrible thing to do to a person. Does it really matter in the end? Like, does that two years of getting ahead so you can go to college early, does that really matter? Wouldn't it be better to be more well-adjusted and kept in the same year? And also, then you can just run circles around your peers because you're so clever. And then they'll probably bully you. But at least they're not massive. <laughs> at least they're not like a foot bigger than you. When his mother grew concerned of this isolation, she would try to bring him to social events, but every time she did, he would become even more unresponsive and reclusive. Concerned for his development, she considered entering him into study for autistic children. However, she felt that the lead psychologist's manner was abrupt and cold, and she felt that it would only harm Ted to be in that kind of situation. His parents seemed very caring. Like, I like these parents. They take him outside, he does this outside stuff, they move him ahead two years, which, I mean, as a parent, you'd think, without thinking you know without knowing the potential consequences you think that's a good thing my kid got moved ahead two years i'm proud of you son i'm proud of you but yeah that's obviously not been great for his adjustment but these sound like really good parents as ted got older his capacity for learning only grew he would also find a select group of kids that he was comfortable socializing with he was also part of several clubs played the trombone spoke german and most of all excelled in maths classes. As he progressed through the teens, Ted began spending less time outdoors and more time shut up in his room studying. According to his family and teachers, Ted would willingly commit hours every day to studying advanced maths problems, so much so that in 1957, after attending summer school, he graduated and earned a full scholarship to Harvard University at the age of only 15. 
That is seriously impressive. By 16, he had begun his studies at Harvard, spending the first year in a house for the younger members of Harvard, most of them prodigies like himself. The following three years, he lived at Elliott House. His housemates at that time recall that Kaczynski was incredibly reclusive. He would rarely leave his room except to eat, attend classes, and occasionally socialize. Late at night, he would practice trombone. That sounds annoying. <laughs> I'm trying to sleep, Ted! Ted! Night is time for maths, day is time for trombone. Most sources report that Ted was a recluse at this time, however, interviews with his classmates paint Ted as a reserved but passionate youth. He had friends and would socialize with them fairly regularly. In one interview, a classmate of Ted said that he would come across as quiet and shy at first meeting, but it only took for him to trust you, and he would become very talkative, eager to expound upon his views on both the world and mathematics. In his second year, Ted entered himself into a psychological study with one of the university's head psychology professors, Dr. Henry Murray. Oh, I am beginning to realize that I entirely forgot something about this story, where he does that Is this Ted Kaczynski? Is he the one who is part of like a CIA experiment with drugs? Um, I feel like it is. Let's carry on. Out of roughly 200 other applicants, Ted and nine other boys were selected after extensive psychological testing. These tests were designed to find the most psychologically fragile of all applicants. That doesn't sound very ethical, guys. These students would then be interviewed at length about their philosophies on life, their beliefs, and many other highly personal topics. They were told to submit essays describing their own personal philosophies, beliefs, and aspirations. These essays and an in-depth psychological analysis of the subject's personality were given to an anonymous individual who sat down with Kaczynski and effectively ridiculed him for it. Holy shit, this is like crazy violation of ethics. Making what Murray described as vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive attacks, Ted and other subjects were strapped with electrodes to monitor their brain activity, and their facial expressions were closely recorded to see how they responded to these attacks. In later sessions, these... So they basically found people who were psychologically weak, got them to reveal everything about themselves, and then used that information to destroy their already psychologically weak selves. I can't help but feeling that whoever did this might be a little bit responsible for what happened with Ted Kaczynski. Hmm? Yes? Maybe? Come on. In later sessions, these recordings of his expressions of rage and upset were played back to him. In all, the study lasted two years. Ted would spend upwards of 200 hours as part of the study being humiliated, ridiculed, and verbally abused for the vast majority of the sessions. What is this nonsense? This is often pointed to as a watershed moment in his life, one of the most direct causes of the kind of person that he would become. However, Kaczynski insists that he was not adversely affected by these traumatic interviews. Whatever the case, Ted graduated in 1962, aged 20, with a degree in mathematics. He would then enroll at the University of Michigan, where he would earn both his master's and doctoral dissertation by 1967. Although he attended Michigan, he also applied for postgraduate education at UC Berkeley and the University of Chicago, both of which were universities that he preferred, and both of which accepted him. However, they did not offer him a teaching position or financial aid, which Michigan had offered pay him $2,310 annually, equivalent to $19,763 today, and offering him a teaching post. Really? That doesn't seem very high for a prodigy who's extremely good at what he does. They're paying him less than $20,000 a year as a teacher? That seems a little bit unreasonable, guys. In his time at Michigan, Kaczynski specialized in complex analysis and geometric function theory. That sounds like the sort of thing that someone needs to get paid more than $20,000 a year to do. Because I don't know what complex analysis and geometric function theory is, let alone what it's about. <laughs> All of which are about as boring as they sound. 
Believe me, I committed a whole hour of my life just trying to understand precisely what those words mean. Why? Because I guess I hate myself. Well, Angus, I'm glad you did it rather than me. Anyway, Kaczynski was apparently really good at this. According to his maths professor, Kaczynski was unusual, more focused than most other students, and more committed to plumbing the depths of mathematical truth. Despite receiving excellent marks, Kaczynski said that his time at Michigan was not happy. His teaching obligations made him feel resentful over the fact that he was having to spend time teaching less capable minds than his own. <laughs> There's a friend of mine who's a really bright guy. And he's a he's a university academic, and I remember how upset he was when he found out that he had to like run. He had to do like one lecture a week, and he was like, he was like, this is such a waste of my time. He was like, this is just makes me so unhappy. I don't like teaching. I'm not good at teaching. People don't like being taught by me, and it's just a waste of my time. It's a waste of the university's money. And he's just going on about this, and I was like, dude, it's an hour a week. Just do it. Shut up and take their money. <laughs> He was not happy. I think then he left and he found a place. Now he he definitely doesn't have to teach anymore. Probably for the benefit of everybody. <laughs> Socially, he was struggling to form any kind of romantic connection with a woman. They would either ignore him or lose interest after spending any amount of time with him. Though looking at pictures of him from this time, I'd not judge him to be a bad-looking guy. He apparently took no interest in the social uproar that was the 1960s, instead dressing like a stuffy professor and avoiding social contact at all costs. No surprises why the girls weren't fawning after him. It was noted in a psychological evaluation of Kaczynski that he had a habit of becoming deeply infatuated with women that he interacted with. He would spend hours writing about them in his diary. The only issue was that these women gave absolutely no indication of reciprocation for these feelings. Yeah, it's also a bit intense, isn't it, dude? <laughs> Which led to a pattern forming where Ted would become infatuated with someone, give said person no indication of his feelings due to a social anxiety, grow despondent at the lack of a connection between them, which would inevitably lead to venomous hatred towards this entirely unsuspecting individual growing within him. That is, uh, that is dark. That is dark. If this was a normal casual criminalist, it'd be like, and then he put them in the boot of his car, took them out to the river, and tortured them to death and threw them in the river. But fortunately, Ted Kaczynski is not that kind of serial killer. Which, I mean, yeah, it's horrible that he blew people up, but it is a little bit of a reprieve from what we, you know... <laughs> I don't know how an episode about bombings feels where people had bits of metal impaled into their body and died, but it does somehow feel like a reprieve from the regular psychos. Then, several years after beginning in Michigan, Ted began to have intense erotic feelings about the idea of becoming a woman. Gender dysphoria can be caused by a multitude of things which are very real and can deeply impact the life of a person who experiences it. To Ted, it was highly sexual in nature, which would mean that it was not a true case of gender dysphoria. He believed that gender reassignment would give him some kind of sexual release. So he made an appointment at a university clinic to see a psychiatrist who specializes in gender reassignment with the idea that he would lie to the psychiatrist and convince them that he was suffering from real gender dysphoria. However, while sitting in the waiting room, Kaczynski changed his mind. He told the psychiatrist that he was just depressed about the idea of getting drafted and was looking for a way out. His diary, on the other hand, said something different. Quote, I felt disgusted about what my uncontrolled sexual cravings had almost led me to do, and I felt humiliated and violently hated the psychiatrist. Just then, there came a major turning point in my life. Like a phoenix, I burst from the ashes of my despair to a glorious new hope. This sounds like something, and I, I don't mean to imply that... I don't... <laughs> I'm not saying that he wanted to become a woman because it wasn't innate to him, but it does sound also like he just went through this incredibly traumatic experience of being essentially like tortured 
um, psychologically for 200 hours over two years as part of that program, and it seems like it took this already fragile person and just broke him even further. But what was this new hope? It was to enact his hatred on those that he hated most. This was the experimenters that had tortured him while at Harvard. It was the therapist. It was everyone that he had grown to resent in his life. Strangely enough, some of the people he hated most were his family, whether they deserved it or not. He wrote, I will kill, but I will make at least some effort to avoid detection so that I can kill again. Oh my god, that is a dark thing to write, my dude. Also, you are absolutely writing down your crimes in extensive detail in a diary, which as we all know not a good it's like rule number one don't write down your crimes it's it always comes up even ted kaczynski an iq of 187 writing down his crimes in a later interview he explained that he thought he wanted to kill the psychiatrist because his future looked empty however in a sudden realization he found that he didn't care whether he lived or died and in a leap of logic that for the life of me i cannot fathom he concluded that if dying was not an issue to him why not actually kill the psychiatrist and everyone else that he hated while he was at it it's not the leap of logic is he's just not very good at empathy he's just like if i feel that way other people must feel that way which is obviously not how it works. He describes the feeling as being liberated, like relinquishing the desire to live gave him the freedom to be daring, irresponsible, or criminal, and he decided all of this on the walk home from the clinic. Oh my god. <laughs> that is very dark. This, of course, was all going on privately, deep within the disturbed psyche of Ted Kaczynski. On the surface, however, it was smooth and unperturbed. He continued to teach and achieved his master's and PhD in boundary functions in 1967 by winning the Sumner B. Myers Prize for Best Mathematics Dissertation of the Year. With these credentials, he secured the assistant professor position at Berkeley that he had been denied years before and was on his way to receiving tenure. Bear in mind that he was only 25 at this time. That's incredible. <laughs> Same as his time at Michigan, Kaczynski taught but was not well-liked by those who he taught and same as when he was in michigan he courted women but was unsuccessful it was also at the time that he read a book called technological society by jacques l this book became his bible and many of the ideas listed in this book would reappear in his manifesto years later though kaczynski would progress the ideas to the extreme then in the summer of 1969 shortly before ted was to attend a meeting to discuss receiving his tenure he submitted a sudden and unexpected letter of resignation providing no explanation at least to the colleges this decision was sudden and unexpected however to ted this decision had been made three years ago on the same day that he attended the gender reassignment clinic on his walk home he had decided many things one that he was going to kill another was that he was going to exit society his plan was to achieve his phd and work until he could save up enough money to buy a piece of isolated land in alaska or canada that he could live off in complete isolation avoiding both people and the changing society around him that's intense he decided both of these things <laughs> I'm going to kill and retreat from society on his walk home. It's just like he's. That's why I get. I guess you can make these big decisions when you have an IQ of 187. You just figure out your entire future on the walk home. I'm still trying to work out my entire future. I think about it all the time. Life is a Luddite. From Berkeley, Ted would return to living with his parents in 1971 for two years until he moved into a cabin that he and his brother had purchased in Lincoln, Montana. To Ted, this was bliss. A life away from government intervention, from deceitful and manipulative agents who would stop at nothing to abuse, slander, and belittle him. If that last bit sounds off, there is one bit of Ted's personality that, for narrative reasons, I forgot to mention. From a young age, Ted would obsess over small things that were said to him. Even the smallest comment about his personality, his intelligence, his ideas 
anything. Even if it was just a Joby or comment, Ted would receive it as an open and aggressive attack. Even things that weren't negative he would obsess over. A notable incident occurred when Ted was 19, and a 45-year-old woman said that Ted was a handsome young man. Most of us will have heard something like this from a kind, motherly type at some point in our lives. It's a nice thing to hear. And of course, they definitely 100% mean it. Ted, however, would hold on to this comment for the next 29 years. He would wonder why women were not interested in him if that 45-year-old woman had said one thing to him when he was 19. We know this because in his diary he writes about this woman whenever he begins to question why he is repeatedly unsuccessful in finding a partner. Something along the lines of, but if she said I was handsome, why do I have no luck with girls? This all came to a head when at the age of 47 he asked a neighbor what her opinion of him was and she replied that he was entirely average looking. Strangely enough, Ted used this as evidence that he was simply unattractive to all women, but on the contrary, this woman saying this implied that the vast majority of the population fall into the average category and therefore he should have been quite likely to find a partner. Yeah, it's just pictures of Ted Kaczynski. I've saw you see many throughout this video. He's not a bad looking dude. <laughs> like, it's not how he looks that's the problem. <laughs> Another issue was that while living in normal society, Ted became convinced that all people around him were slandering him. It was a common occurrence that if he saw a woman he was obsessing over at the time talking to another person, he would assume that this woman was talking about him, insulting him, and generally sharing a negative opinion of him. This sounds like, um, is that, is it schizophrenia where you think people are talking about you all the time? Like, one of the things I remember learning that creeped me out when I was a kid was like one of the first signs of schizophrenia is like when you can just say you're in a room and you can, have I told this story before? Maybe. And you can just about hear a conversation going on in another say you're in like an office or in another part of the house and you're like you, you can just about hear it and you're listening in and you're listening in and you're like oh yeah they're talking about me yeah i can just about hear it they're talking about me apparently that's one of the first signs where it's like you're paranoid and you're thinking that the people are talking about you even when they're just having a regular conversation you can't hear it you're just like you can just about hear it i'm sure i'm telling this wrong but it was like i don't know as a kid i'd always think about that and be like oh no <laughs> don't think people are talking about you they're probably not don't be paranoid. He would also overhear his landlady regularly sharing nasty comments about him, though this would always be heard through a door or an open window. This is what I'm talking about. He would never see it directly happening. He would never directly see it happening. When questioned about what was being said, Ted said he wasn't quite sure, just that they were negative comments. This is exactly one of these are all symptoms of a paranoid mind with tendencies towards paranoid schizophrenia. Exactly. For you, I'm satisfied with myself. For everyone at home listening to this, like something, you're just repeating what, what, what Angus wrote. <laughs> But that didn't bother Ted anymore. He was away, far away from all of that, cut off and unconcerned by the thoughts of others. He was living the life that he had sought for years, and moreover, he was living autonomously. He was isolated but happy, or at least he thought he was. If being a writer has taught me anything, it is that isolation is like a drug. Even if it feels good, it is dangerous. The more you have, the more you want, and the more you have of it, the more damage it can inflict. Really? I feel differently about isolation. I feel like if I'm isolated for a, you know, a day or two, it's pretty nice. Like I have a little holiday house and uh, especially before we had kids, sometimes I'll just go there for the weekend if my wife went to see her parents or was doing something with her friends or whatever. And I'll just go out there, be like a couple of days. And then afterwards I'll be like, I'm quite looking forward to going back and seeing everybody and, and catching up because I haven't talked to anyone in two days. I feel like that's my experience with isolation, rather than being like, it's two days now, I just don't want to go back. It's been a week. Definitely not going back two weeks. <laughs> I'll be like, where, where the f*** are you? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Is that just me? I feel like that's more common. 
for a mind as fragile as ted's it can cause a spiral that is guaranteed to end in disastrous consequences this is shown by the fact that every now and again he would commit small acts of arson here and there to the local logging industry but what's a bit of arson between friends he would occasionally move between chicago and salt lake city in this time working odd jobs only for a month or two before returning to his cabin this was his habit and he stayed that way until 1978 when he moved to chicago to work at a factory that his brother owned working as a foam cutting engineer wait if he didn't we say he was living autonomously doesn't that mean like gathering your own water and hunting and living off the land so why does he need a job why is he earning money why did he have to do this maybe to buy bomb making equipment oh my gosh dark during this time he started a new obsession over the shift manager at the factory however this one was exceptional because he actually asked her out and she said yes they had two dates that he had felt had gone well however she unfortunately said she didn't want to pursue a relationship with him and ted well let's just say that ted didn't take this rejection very well not shocking at all really is it the next day he turned up at work early before anyone had arrived and stuck insulting limericks about the shift manager all over the factory ted you that is so weird my guy david his brother was the first to arrive and managed to get rid of them before the others arrive he can <laughs> you have to speak to toby and hr about this one ted jesus he confronted ted about it who argued but eventually david ended up getting fired needless to say this took an already distraught ted and turned it up several thousand percent and if any of you have been keeping up with the timeline this would coincide with a certain bomb being placed in the northwestern university parking lot no i had no idea <laughs> I'm reading I'm supposed to be paying attention I'm like I have no idea of the time frame I have no idea when this is happening when this relates to the bombs uh-oh and it's here that we have come full circle after the placing of the first bomb Ted would return to his cabin and remove his brother as co-owner he would then spend the next 17 years developing his ideology and his bombing techniques in complete isolation 17 years oh my god he would build the devices in his cabin and catch a bus to a random location for sending pay cash for all stamps and bus tickets any accommodation he would give a false name and pay cash all of his victims were for the most part picked out randomly from listings of experts in certain fields that he found at his local library which is why the information remember how some of it was out of date that's probably why if you look back at the timeline of his life you have a person who doesn't receive so much as a parking fine across their entire lifetime he removes himself from society and gives no indication to anybody in his life that he has homicidal ideation to the government he's barely a blip they barely had any idea of his existence much less the kind of hatred that was seething beneath the surface he chose random targets he even delivers his bombs in an anonymous manner on the odd occasion that he does enter society he does so disguised and leaving no trace that had ever been there he's meticulous and intelligent if he sets his mind to something he will understand all there is to understand about it even down to the choice of stamp choosing one that would be most difficult to trace this has got to be one of the only cases i've ever heard of where both the criminal and the authorities aren't incompetent but at some point one of them has to slip up yeah this is a fascinating thing because normally i'm having a go at being like criminals an idiot police are an idiot or what you know one of them always is and in this case it's like no 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 the police are really good the criminals also really good like i said right at the beginning of the previous episode like the first part of this it's like this is an actual one where it's like this isn't some like clickbait title the leopold and Lowe, the genius killers this is really smart people at the fbi versus a guy who is even smarter it's really good i mean it's horrible he was a bomber but it's a really good it's a fascinating story capture 
And that brings us round to the tip sitting on the desk of the head of the Unabomb task force in San Francisco. This letter, sent by an anonymous man in Montana, said that the person who wrote the Unabomb manifesto shared a lot of similarities with his estranged brother. He attached letters that were sent to him years ago from his brother, describing anti-technology views and ridiculing him about how he was sacrificing his freedom by living in modern society. This was enough to pique the investigators' interest, and as they dug in more, they began to connect the dots. Born in Chicago, moved away for college, received his PhD, returned to Chicago before moving around. The only bit they got wrong was that he had not lived in Salt Lake City or the San Francisco Bay Area, or he had, but only while studying and not during his bombing spree. Wait, didn't they say that he didn't complete his PhD? Anyway, at once they sent agents to begin surveilling his cabin in the woods, watching to see his movements. He would go out regularly, tend to a small patch of crops, and hunt. They contacted the lawyer's office that had made the anonymous tip, insisting that they get through to whoever had made it. This brought them through to David Kaczynski, now 47 years old and married. He and Ted had not spoken for years, although they had continued correspondence with letters. Fortunately for the FBI, David had kept each one of them. David and his mother were interviewed about Ted, asked about his movements, his childhood, everything. They interviewed his professors, his colleagues at the university, and the people he worked with. When they got to Montana, they began interviewing everyone in the town of Lincoln. They interviewed his neighbors, and the more information they got, the more certain they were that he was the Unabomber. Eventually, they had enough for a search warrant, which posed a bit of a problem, because as his neighbors knew full well, Ted was not one to enjoy an unprompted visit, much less from complete strangers, even less when those strangers happened to be from the FBI. It's like everything this guy hates. If they were right that he was the Unabomber, it would not be out of the question that he would have some kind of trap set up to catch unwanted guests, so they had to be cunning. Out of all the townsfolk who knew of Ted, his neighbor knew him best. He was the only person to ever enter Ted's cabin outside of Ted himself. So they got him and the local sheriff to agree to call upon Ted. They used the excuse that they wanted to know where Ted's land ended so that a forestry company could start logging near him. Early on April the 3rd, 1996, a knock rang out on the door of Ted's cabin. He didn't answer at first, so the sheriff called for him and knocked again. After a moment, the door opened to crack, just enough for Ted to peer out with one eye. The sheriff asked if he could just point out the eastern stakes of his property line. He paused for a moment before opening the door a little wider. Looking suspicious, he said that his land was clearly marked. The sheriff said that he couldn't find his markings. Finally, Ted opened the door fully and stepped out of his cabin. The moment he was clear of the door, the sheriff lunged at him, wrapping his arms around Ted's chest and pulling him to the ground outside of the cabin. The neighbor jumped in and grabbed Ted's legs. At the same moment, FBI agents came running over from behind trees and began detaining him. He struggled for a moment, but ultimately saw that he would not escape, and he gave up. After 19 years of hunting, they finally had him. Trial and Imprisonment With this search warrant approved, the FBI could investigate every minute detail of this hermit's life. What they found was a 10-foot by 12-foot cabin, full to bursting with evidence. As you walk into the cabin, there's a bed on your right, a desk on your left, and two typewriters. All over the walls, there's shelves upon shelves filled with books, food, clothes, homemade guns, chemicals, everything one might need to build a bomb. Contrary to his promise to stop all bombings if they published his manifesto, there was a fully constructed bomb lying underneath Ted's bed. On top of the desk was an enormous notebook outlining nearly every detail of Ted's life from the age of 20. Seems like old Teddy has been uh, violating. We, we already know he's violating it, but oh boy, this guy's vi- I mean, seeing as he's probably our, you know, the smartest criminal that we've had so far, he's definitely not very good at obeying the rules of being a criminal. 
The day following the raid, Kaczynski was charged with possessing the components of a bomb, all based on evidence found in the search of the cabin. This is, of course, a pretty minor charge in the grand scheme of his crimes, but this was just so they could detain him while they built a further case against him. This all came to a head when Kaczynski was indicted by a federal grand jury on 10 counts relating to bombing attacks on Hugh Scruton, Charles Epstein, Gilbert Murray, and David Gelertner. He is then indicted by a separate federal grand jury, this one in New Jersey, for the bombing of Thomas Moser. Now, this is a federal case, right? So he's got to be up against the death penalty. Because, I mean, spoiler alert, we all know he's still alive. He's in that famous prison in the mountains. Um, so what does he do to avoid the death penalty? Because he's murdered people. He's made bombs. He's been a terrorist. I mean, it sounds like you've got a date with a needle, but he's obviously going to do something to get away from that. This was supposed to be an open and shut case. He was found in his cabin with a notebook detailing only things that the bomber would know, detailing how to build a bomb of similar specifications to the one recovered at the Boeing factory, with supplies to build a bomb and with a pre-made bomb literally sitting underneath his bed. The evidence given by his family, combined with the evidence collected by the FBI over the course of the bombing spree and the evidence collected at his cabin, collectively made the largest volume of evidence applied to a single case in US history. No way. And don't they have his cabin in some like they took the whole cabin, like with everything inside it, and took it to some warehouse somewhere, right? Upon meeting his lawyers, Kaczynski insisted on being heavily involved in his defense and that all motions must be ran by him. Kaczynski and his lawyers chose to plead not guilty due to lack of evidence, which I'll explain in a moment. <laughs> They're going to say that it's all circumstantial. That, yeah, he was making bombs, he just wasn't posting them. It's just completely unrelated. Can you prove the connection beyond all reasonable doubt? I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe they can't. With control of his legal defense, Kaczynski began filing a great many motions, and some of them were pretty bizarre, such as the request that no computers be used during the course of the trial, which was, of course, denied. Others were not quite so off the wall, though, such as the motion that all evidence from the cabin should be thrown out on the grounds the warrant was obtained by giving false and misleading information to the judge that signed off on it. Guys, if you're getting a warrant to search the cabin in the woods of the potential Unabomber, surely you'll be like, we need that air tight why would they like what this motion brought to light the fact that dna gathered from letters sent by ted to his brother conflicted with the dna found in his bombs the motion also stated that when david kaczynski gave the tip to the fbi it was based only on a suspicion that his brother was the unabomber not a certainty however when the warrant was submitted to the judge it made it appear that david was certain of his brother's guilt that sounds like the sort of technicality which gets people off of crimes like that seems pretty dodgy. Why wouldn't you just make sure it was airtight, guys? I guess we should explain here. When a search warrant is issued by a judge, like the warrant to search Kaczynski's cabin, it has to be done on the basis that the investigating body already has sufficient evidence to suspect the person of their guilt, or something like that. Perhaps Simon can correct me on the finer points there. <laughs> no. How <laughs> was I know? This defense can challenge the... I mean, I've done a lot of crime shows, but this is like an American warrant issued... Uh, like, no. No. No idea. The defense can challenge the validity of that search warrant at any time, so it's important that the evidence against them is airtight. Exactly. If the defense challenges the warrants and is found that the evidence presented to the judge who issued the warrant was not sufficient to make it not sufficient, it would make all the evidence found during the search unusable in court proceedings. Even if the evidence proved that the person was guilty, they'd be unable to present it as it was not acquired lawfully. What Kaczynski was effectively saying here is that the FBI had not mentioned the discrepancy between the DNA evidence in the bombs and the DNA evidence on the letters that linked him to the bombs which is a crazy situation because it's like yeah i'm pleading not guilty because you don't have any evidence i know you've got loads of evidence you just can't use it it's like i guess that's why they call these technicalities right but that's a really 
bizarre defense. He also argued that the evidence, but also it's important that it exists because we don't want people like search warrants just being issued willy-nilly without proper sufficient evidence otherwise you know you don't want to live in a police state he also argued that the evidence that drew ideological similarities between the letters he wrote to his brother and the ideology of the unabomber were not sufficient to warrant just cause for a search of his cabin i mean it's an argument isn't it there's a strong argument to be made there every person has a distinct style of writing that can give details as to where they come from and the environment from which they learn to speak and write take for example the word mum in america it's spelt and pronounced mom while over in the uk it's spelt and pronounced mum more specific still in certain parts of the uk people spell and pronounce it as ma'am they do i just learned something new people say ma'am really where it must be really far north or really far south that's weird or in scotland i guess that's far north but i mean like it's a different country but i have a weird they all mean the same thing but you can get information about the backgrounds of the person talking this is called a person's idealect this was one of the areas that kaczynski challenged the fbi used similarities in his idealect from the manifesto and letters to his brother as evidence that they were the same person which as far as i can tell had never been done before which made it a shaky basis to build a search warrant upon and this was the only thing connecting him and the evidence found in his cabin to the evidence acquired by the fbi during the course of the unabomber's reign this would effectively make him innocent as nothing else would connect him to the bombings that's crazy. it wouldn't make him innocent it would just make him getting off on a technicality i mean she's innocent but crazy crazy and it is also risky to grant a search warrant based on that right because sure get the search warrants um for something airtight search them and then introduce in court that the idea is that the letters are similar because then once it's, you know you go through the courts it's used in court that's the first time it happens in a safer environment rather than a potentially dodgy search warrant and then if the courts accept that evidence and it's part of the case then that's going to set a precedent for it to be used in future cases and also more reliably to secure a search warrant right like a more airtight one however as you can probably tell kaczynski was not granted this overhaul of the evidence and the judge ruled that the search warrant could be upheld which was well received in the press and was a huge blow against kaczynski who continued to file for the case to be thrown out on various different grounds up until the date that the trial commenced that was the 12th of november 1997. at the commencement of the trial ted bled not guilty however the issue of psychological testing was raised in essence ted did not trust the government to psychologically analyze him he believed that they would send in a psychiatrist with a pre-decided diagnosis that would fit whatever narrative the prosecution wanted yeah i mean of course i mean not of course but they can do that and then the defense can do the same you can bring in a psychologist of your own who can make a different assessment probably closer to what you want to see at the same time ted had ordered several psychological analyses of his own there we go but throughout all their evaluations after they diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia well that's entirely your prerogative ted you can't not have the government do it the prosecution do it uh, if you're allowed to and you choosing to throw them out that's your choice he did not want to be branded as insane and rather would be found not guilty by some other means which is fascinating because if he was insane he'd probably not be in you know supermax prison right now he'd be in like a facility but he didn't want to be seen as insane because he wanted people to take his manifesto and his message seriously right his defense pleaded with ted to take the diagnosis and present it as a diminished responsibility defense but he still refused by this time the jury had been selected and the court proceedings could begin which brings us to the 5th of january 1998. as soon as proceedings began however kaczynski stood up and announced that he had something important to discuss with the judge about his relations with the his attorneys judge barrel allowed this and he kaczynski and his attorneys 
or retreated to the judge's chambers for a closed meeting. The issue was that Kaczynski's attorneys were impeding him from pursuing any other defense than the insanity defense. A lot of Hollywood enactments of the Unabomber case have played on this part, making it seem like his refusal to pursue an insanity defense was because he didn't want his manifesto to be perceived as the ravings of a lunatic. Oh, wait, have I just fallen for a Hollywood trope? In reality, he simply refused this defense because he didn't trust psychologists. Wow, there you go. Uh, okay. The judge did not appreciate this argument and ruled that he could not make any last-minute switch of defense lawyer, despite receiving an offer from another lawyer earlier that day. Judge Burrow ruled that the trial would go ahead with his current team and that they'd be allowed to provide evidence that painted Kaczynski as a paranoid schizophrenic. In effect, he was saying that Kaczynski's defense was out of his hands. Because, wait, is that allowed? You surely get to choose. Because opening arguments have been interrupted when the trial began, they needed to be pushed back to the following day. However, that night, Kaczynski tried to hang himself in his cell using his underwear. Oh my. He was found before he could do any significant damage, but it showed that he was getting desperate. It seemed that he would rather die a sane man than live as a mentally ill one, which in a way is a statement about his mental health all on its own. The next day, court recommenced and it seemed that the judge was not made aware of Kaczynski's suicide attempt the previous night. If he was, things would have quite likely played out differently. As soon as the opening statements had begun, Kaczynski once again interrupted proceedings and announced his decision to dismiss his legal team and represent himself. So yeah, of course, surely how come he's just doing this now? Surprisingly, the judge allowed this interruption, and even more surprisingly, he agreed to allow Kaczynski to represent himself. Bold move there, Carton, on the condition that he submit to psychological evaluation to ascertain his competency. With no other option, Kaczynski agreed, but insisted that both he and the prosecution could provide an expert of their choosing. Yeah, this all seems completely legitimate and fine. After a week of evaluation, a report submitted to the court stating that Kaczynski is fit to represent himself, but also states that he is likely a paranoid schizophrenic with episodic symptoms. It also says that he likely has paranoid personality disorder with avoidant and antisocial features. Both prosecution and defense agreed that this meant Ted could represent himself, but Judge Burrell, after saying he could represent himself, then rejected Kaczynski's request, saying that it would take too much time for Ted to build his own case. This is a fairly important case, can't we? He should be allowed time. Thus, justice shouldn't be rushed. As far as I can tell, the judge agreed to it in the first place as a way to get Ted to willingly submit to a psychological evaluation. Pretty much, this meant that Ted would have to either represent himself now with no preparation or make a plea deal. If Ted continued to plead not guilty but was found guilty, he would likely receive the death penalty. There we go. The alternative was to plead guilty and make a plea deal. Ted took the latter, pleading guilty on all counts in return, exempting himself from the death penalty. On May the 4th, Kaczynski was sentenced to four life sentences to be served consecutively, bringing an end to one of the most protracted and most expensive manhunts in law enforcement history. So he got what he wanted, essentially. He pled guilty. He wasn't insane, at least according to legal records, which is, uh, except they were like, he's also not insane, but paranoid. And uh, yeah, so kind of weird. Wrap up. At the sentencing hearing, the court used excerpts from his diary as evidence to recommend that Ted be kept in a maximum security prison for the entirety of his sentence. It was here that the court released the contents of the diary from which Kaczynski had documented the entire course of his bombing spree. It contained his ideology, experiments that he conducted refining his bomb-making skills, commentary on the Unibom case, every thought he had, every person he ever met, every event that was noteworthy to Ted Kaczynski was written in that book. The image that Kaczynski had tried to craft with his letters and his manifesto, the image of the principled crusader, a martyr for the people, one that foresaw the dangers of technology and did all he could to warn the masses. This image 
that he tried so hard to craft was entirely brought down by this book. I'll give you two excerpts from it. The first was a commentary on the bomb that was placed by Kaczynski at UC Berkeley. This was the bomb that injured Diogenes Angelakos. It read, Not long after foregoing, I think in June or July, I went to U of California, Berkeley, and placed a computer science building a bomb consisting of a pipe bomb in a gallon of gasoline. According to newspaper, vice chairman of computer side department picked it up. He was considered to be out of danger of losing any fingers, but would need further surgery for bone and tendon damage in hands. Apparently, pipe bomb went off and did not ignite gasoline. I don't understand it. Frustrated. Traveling expenses for raids such as the foregoing are very hard on my slender financial resources. I don't understand why that takes apart his argument for his, you know, industrial society and its future thing. The second excerpt is on the Scraton bomb, the first bomb that Kaczynski managed to get a kill with. He refers to the bomb as Experiment 97. Here's what he wrote. Experiment 97, December the 11th, 1985. I planted a bomb disguised to look like a scrap of lumber behind Rentec Computer Store in Sacramento. According to the San Francisco Examiner, December 20th, the operator, owner, question mark, manager, question mark, of the store was killed, blown to bits on December the 12th. Excellent. Humane way to eliminate somebody. You probably never felt a thing. $25,000 reward offered. Rather flattering. Now, during the script, I've made an effort to describe the effects of Kaczynski's bombs, using only the facts of the event as they occurred. I did this in order to not make a macabre spectacle of these people's misfortunes and suffering. The exception of this was the Hugh Scratton bombing. For that, I made the point of researching the event as much as possible, finding reports on the effect it had on his body, timing of events, location, all that I could so I could describe the precise effect. Perhaps if Kaczynski had seen what he had done to Hugh Scratton, he would not have described the kill as excellent. If he had seen that it took him half an hour to die, he would not have described it as humane. Whatever you can say about Kaczynski, and you can say a lot about him, you cannot deny that he is an interesting case in the history of law enforcement, in psychology, and the world of mass murderers. In many ways, he's a collection of walking, talking contradictions, a genius who didn't have an ounce of emotional intelligence, a scientist who was incapable of questioning his own actions, a prolific writer who spent the vast majority of his life avoiding people, a hermit who was more famous than the most B-list celebrities. The list goes on, but you get the point. It's often the case that Hollywood deifies serial killers. They glamorize their crimes and their personalities into that of infamous legends. In the case of Ted Bundy, he was the intelligent and good-looking guy who could achieve anything through his sheer charm. Ted Kaczynski's legend was that of a genius who saw flaws in society and chose to live life in his own way on his own terms. Reprehensible, yeah, but smart enough to run rings around the FBI for 18 years. In writing, this is called the anti-hero, a person that for all their bad qualities has a redeeming quality. Bundy has his charm. Kaczynski has intelligence. But if writing this script has taught me one thing, it's that these legends are true works of fiction. Kaczynski was not a man acting on principle. He was a man who felt he had been mistreated by the world and was lashing out at those he felt responsible. He had nothing that makes him exceptional other than his ability to justify his misguided anger more eloquently than other serial killers. I... I agree. I definitely agree. But I do think there's a couple of things missed there. One, he's mentally ill. Like, it seems pretty clear during his trial that there is some degree of paranoid schizophrenia to him. I also do truly believe that he was acting something on principle of he believes that society is being destroyed by technology. I don't think he doesn't believe that. I don't think that's an excuse for him to kill and satisfy some bloodlust. Look, I don't think he's an anti-hero by any means. He, you know... He's, he's not a hero at all, however you want. But I don't think it's as simple as him just being a killer without a mission. I think he did have a, a bizarre, misguided mission. I'll leave you with a quote from the wife of Charles Epstein, who spoke to Kaczynski during the sentencing hearing. 
Given that your victims were blinded by your bombs, may your eyes be deprived of the light of the moon, the stars, the sun, and the beauty of nature for the rest of your life. Given that your victims lost their hearing because of your bombs, may your ears become deaf as your eardrums implode from the stony silence of your surroundings for the rest of your life. Given that your victims were maimed by your bombs, may your fingers, your hands, your arms, your legs, and your body be shattered by the violence and hatred that you wrought against others. The violence and hatred which has already mangled and distorted your mind. Given that your victims were killed by your bombs, may your own eventual death occur as you have lived in a solitary manner, without compassion or love. And she gets what she wants. He's in that maximum security at ADX Florence forever, in his own little self, like 23 hours a day or something. Uh, it seems slightly cruel and unusual, but here we have it, right? Dismembered Appendices. One, if you picked up on it, Ted Kaczynski was on the list of potential suspects, just not even in their top 1,000. He was number 2,416th in their list of likely suspects, so I mean, they have gotten to him eventually. Maybe. Number two. During the 1993 bombing at Yale, I found several reports of a call that was made on the same day as the attack to a switchboard at the Veteran Affairs Medical Center. The anonymous caller simply said, You are next, and then hung up the phone. This was apparently aimed at David Gillard and his brother, Joel, who worked at the Veteran Affairs Hospital. Now, it wasn't another question for Kaczynski to ridicule his victims. He did this on several occasions, but I do find it very unlikely that he would do it in this way based on what we know about him. First of all, he was a notorious Luddite and abhorred the use of phones. The second was that David Galenta was selected randomly from a list of Yale professors. Why would Kaczynski go to the trouble of finding out not only who his brother was, but where he worked and how to contact him if only to call him and say, you're next? What is strange is that this event was mentioned in a couple of publications, which would mean that one, this actually happened, which I find highly unlikely, two, that someone made it up for some unknown reason, or three, just by coincidence, on the same day that David Galatner received a bomb, his brother Joel received a random phone call stating, you're next, but the two incidents are just completely unrelated. That seems unlikely. There is also option four, that some piece of information has been misquoted at some point and then repeated by multiple press who misinterpreted the quote. Yeah, that's often what goes on <laughs> number three if you're interested ted kaczynski is still alive he is a prolific writer and who is in contact with many uh, neo-anarchist philosophers he spends something like 23 hours a day in solitary confinement of which of that time he spends writing and if you'd like to contact him you can although i wouldn't recommend it you're likely just going to annoy some poor prison clerk who sifts through all the letters sent to him if you want his address get involved with neo-anarchist philosophers or contact a journalist that has spoken with him but I'd recommend you don't give him your return address. <laughs> He's not making any bombs in prison, but still, you don't want it. You don't want that. Don't do that. Don't write to people. Don't don't write to murderers in prison. It's weird. Uh, this has been an episode of the Casual Criminalist, a two-parter. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it all the way through. It was a long one. We've been on a journey. I've been recording this for the better part of a day, taking little breaks, getting little bits of coffee. Uh, thank you. Thank you for watching. Um, please leave a review if you enjoy the show. Uh, you used to do it as a podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, hello. Subscribe, like, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.